Howdy, partners, and welcome to Cinemusts, the podcast where we debate the must-see status of the films included in the book A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, and listeners decide if they should be included on the list of essential cinema. I'm Ferryman Mike Emmel, and I'm very happy to welcome my co-host back for this episode. You all know him as the host of two excellent film podcasts, Below Freezing and A Thousand and One by One. He is also host to several past Cinemust episodes, such as Pulp Fiction, In Bruges, and The Graduate. He's the renegade outlaw who can bullseye a beetle with a bullet or a mouthful of chaw. It's Adam St. John. Adam, welcome back. Mike, don't piss on my back and tell me it's raining. <laughs> How you doing? Fam- Glad to be Famous back. Missouri saying. Say that all the time. <laughs> I, am, I, I am great, my friend. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. Uh, I'm still in the midst of, of a spring break on my end, so uh, it's it's pretty cash. I've been able to uh, to watch some Western-related material in terms of getting ready for uh, for talking about our, our man Clint today. I am so, so excited, as everybody uh, who listens to the show regularly knows. I'm a Western fan. This is going to be great. Uh, before we do that... You're a busy fella. You run not one but two movie podcasts. Would you mind taking a second to tell us what's going on on Below Freezing and 1001 by 1 lately? Absolutely. Uh, so the, the quick gist, uh, Below Freezing, I do with my wife, Melissa. Uh, our, our conceit there is that we can only talk about shows that have uh, critical Rotten Tomato scores of 32% or less. Um, at least as of recording, we've just wrapped up the Sharknado franchise. So we've we've watched all of those. There are six of them. I'm not sure if you knew that. That's how many we've we've watched. There you go. Um, and uh, it's mo- it's usually just a lot of fun. We got a couple of of little funny bit things that we do. It ends up it ends up turning into very much like a real life therapy session as we go through it. Um, <laughs> but we we drink, we have fun. It's all it's all just a laugh. You know, we don't take it very seriously. On the flip side, and uh, a show that's very similar to this one is A Thousand and One by One. Uh, which I uh, co-host with uh, Joey, who does a lot of stuff over at Best Picture Cast and also is on Worst Picture Cast, and Britt. And um, we pick movies out of the book, 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. We talk about them, talk about their themes. Uh, we talk about sort of their 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 state now. What do we think about them? And ultimately decide if those movies should be in the book of movies that you must see. And... Um, Oh boy, we've covered a lot. Uh, we started back, we did get Carter, Old Boy, M, uh, and our first director ranking that we've done this year, we did Eraserhead right into our David Lynch ranking. So that's wonderful. The, the big thing we've done there. Please, Cinemust rated Eraserhead. Uh, the, the, that one might surprise you, but the Lynch ranking one was a, an absolute blast. I will say, just for the record, our tens were the same and our ones were the same. But we had some good some good mix in the middle there. So is Maholland Drive the one? Is it? It has to be. Yeah. It uh, all right. All right. All Maybe right. cut that out. I'm not, I'm not sure when that's coming out. So I don't know. <laughs> hey, th- we're we're a ways out on this one too. So it's all okay. Good. All right. <laughs> um Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we I've uh, you guys have a heck of a season lined up here. Uh uh, some movies we've discussed and we've done uh, that made cinemas. The Red Shoes was a great episode that I caught. Also made cinemas for us. But you have some ones that I'm jealous we're not covering. You got stuff like uh, LA Confidential coming up. That's the big one that I'm like ah to to be there. I'm very excited. Uh, where can people find either of these shows? Uh, at a thousand and one by one um, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. For below freezing, I think we've got a couple like Instagram. I think we're below freezing. Twitter, we're below freezing 32. Um, 
there was I don't know there's another film podcast called Below Freezing that had a very similar theme, but I don't think it's active anymore. So, anyways, um, you'll know it's us because Grant, who also does stuff at Worst Picture Cast and Best Picture Cast, he did our uh, great logo with the uh, the frozen tomato symbol below freezing it's it's really great um so and you'll see our names too but um yeah we're we're all the places you can find podcasts and stuff and i highly recommend everybody go find you because you put on great shows you're you're a man of many talents so thank you for loaning those talents out here to cinemas yet again fourth time on the show right in indeed yes and uh as as well when we get into the the the, the depths of the show i i it's you know, I've gotten to talk about some films I love and then, uh, you know, <laughs> other things. So, sure. <laughs> I'm excited to get there, man. Well, um, it's great to have you back, man. Uh, welcome back to you. And hey, welcome back to everybody who's listening. We are glad to have you all here because we need you to join our posse on a hunt that's going to take us to Texas, through the nations, around the world, and maybe even to hell just in time for breakfast. It's the hunt for the truly essential movies. To determine if tonight's film is going to earn a place on our list of essential cinema, we leave it up to all of you to cast your votes on the polls we're going to put out on our various social media pages. So if you're not already doing so, make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can find us on any of them by searching for Cinemusts, and that way you can cast your vote on the must-see status of tonight's movie. While you want to make sure you're following us on whatever of those platforms you prefer, I'm going to give you the rundown on how you'll cast your vote. Adam, you simplify this process. You have the simple question, does this movie deserve to be in the 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die book? We follow my OCD into a much more complicated process where every movie gets voted into one of three tiers. Top tiers are the cinema musts. These are movies you recommend absolutely everybody see at least once in their lifetime. In the middle tier are the cinema trusts, movies that are maybe good, maybe bad, but you only recommend them to some people and not to everybody. And in the bottom tier are the Cinebusts, maybe a good movie, probably a bad movie, but it's a movie you don't recommend to anybody at all at any point in their life. So, uh, Adam, we're going to be talking about a movie tonight. We're going to vote into one of those three tiers. And normally this is the part of the show where I thank you again profusely for coming back and telling me what'd you choose, why'd you choose it. But we are playing another little game here. You had mentioned some friends of ours over at Best Picture Cast. We have Joey, we have Grant. Of course, Best Picture Cast run by... Uh, the incomparable Kieran B, who has hosted our episodes on Willy Wonka and Brief Encounter. We have this game put together that I have done with uh, a couple other hosts who are friends in the podcasting world. And uh, I pitched it out to you guys to say, would you guys want to do a couple episode run where uh, we round robin it and you pick movies for each other and you all <laughs> were really surprisingly excited and you all jumped on board. So... We randomized this up, we assign movies out, and uh, you're up first here, and Kieran has chosen your movie for you. So, since you uh, didn't pick the movie, I'm very grateful you're here, but since Kieran is the one who chose this movie, I wanted to kick it over to him real quick to explain what he chose for you and why. So let's have a listen to Kieran B. and his pick for tonight's episode. Hi Mike. Hi Adam. It's your pal Kieran B. from Best Picture Cast and also the previous co-host of Cinemust episodes on Willy Wonka and Brief Encounter. I'm here today to select a film specifically for Adam. Hey Adam, in an early episode of 1001 by 1, your podcast, you guys covered the Clint Eastwood-directed Western classic, 
High Plains Drifter, a movie that Mike also selected as his recommend for his first appearance on 1001 by 1. Adam and Ian were famously split on the film, with Adam not totally enjoying what Clint was dishing out there. At the end of the episode, Ian had wondered what Adam would have thought of the other film they were considering covering, and that film was The Outlaw, Josie Wales. So I think it's time we bring this thing full circle. As a Clint Eastwood enthusiast, I am proud to select for Adam, a film directed by and starring Clint Eastwood himself, The Outlaw, Josie Wales. And this selection is dedicated to the memory of our friend Ian Woodington. There you have it, boys. Go ahead. Make my day. So, Adam, thoughts and reactions? Well, I will say that uh, part of this week was spent re-watching High Plains Drifter and sifting back into that world because I I had not revisited that movie since we covered it on the show. So I, but I wanted to be like, well, and, and I, Kieran had alluded to that being kind of the reason behind why he picked Outlaw Jesse Wales. So I was like, okay, well, let me be, you know, I can't just come into this blind. I have to kind of keep both, both of these in mind. So, um, uh, and I, and I think it's a, it's a great pick. And I, I, I think why I appreciate it the most is because there were, we had so many conversations about film. He, I mean, there were probably a dozen, two dozen movies uh, Kieran could have picked from that Ian and I talked about. But I think going back to one of our earliest episodes and pulling something that we that I hadn't seen that I couldn't uh, give an opinion on at the time, I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I I join you in doing the revisit, um, and I, I revisited episode fourteen of a thousand one by one for for High Plains Drifter, an episode I I aligned more with Ian on, and I'm sure it'll come up. I appreciate the hell out of this recommend, Kieran. Thank you, because I, I'm a, a Western fan. A little intimidated because I am extremely not well-versed, actually, in Clint Eastwood-directed films. That is that is Kieran's forte, so I hope this lives up not only to uh, being a bookend conversation to the High Plains Drifter episode with Ian, but also I hope that this, is, uh, this makes Kieran proud uh, with the Eastwood talk. I think this is going to be utterly fantastic. So. Shall we get into it? Oh, let's do it. All right. Well, for those of you who are new to the show, we are going to take a couple of minutes here to talk about The Outlaw Josie Wales, totally spoiler-free. So if you haven't seen it, uh, hang with us for a little bit. We'll tell you what it's about. Adam and I will vote it into one of the three categories I explained earlier, a cinemust, a cinetrust, or a cinebust. We got to give three reasons each why we vote it into the category we did. And from there, we'll start backing up those points with specifics from the movie. So hang with us for a little bit. We'll let you know when we're going into spoilers. Um, so Adam, I turn it over to you. What is uh, the outlaw Josie Wales about? So the outlaw Josie Wales. Uh, this is the little description that I have typed up. Um, and I, I I don't know how to not say spoilers about something that happened so early on in the movie. So I'll be vague. Um, after a terrible incident, um, that is uh, instigated by Redlegs, Josie Wales teams up with a guerrilla unit of Confederate soldiers to seek justice. When the time comes to surrender, Josie can't do it and is one of only a few survive- survivors after his crew is blindsided in a slaughter. On the run, Josie assembles a ragtag team of Native Americans, saloon patrons, and uppity white people to finally seek the revenge he has so long been searching for. Got chills. This is, this is great Western <laughs> stuff. Well, Adam, I, you've, uh, 
you have kept a mysterious air about you. You've, you've abstained from putting notes on the shared agenda here. So I have literally no idea where this is going. So let's make it official. Between a Cinemust, a Cinetrust, or a Cinebust, where does the outlaw Josie Wales fit for you? Mike, this is a Cinebust from me. Oh! All right. Will you please explain to us three of your main reasons why? Absolutely. One. And, and, and I should say, I should preface this, that because we're also thinking about movies that should be in this book, um, I, I, my, uh, some of my answers very much kind of relate to that. So, number one, Josie Wales is not an iconic Eastwood role, nor does he do anything different in it. Two. The film's reach exceeds its grasp when it comes to mixing the revenge narrative and the historical context and background. And three, it does not advance the Western genre in any meaningful way. All right. So uh, shots fired, if you pardon the pun here. But that's, uh, that's great. I, uh, I'm very excited here. So this is a movie at no point in their life you recommend anybody see. No. <laughs> okay. I will have a follow-up question that I want to save for the end of the spoiler discussion, so please do not let me forget to ask you the big, all-important question. But before we dive into this, I'll, I'll uh, give my official vote. I will go one tier up. I will Cinna trust the outlaw Josie Wales. There are some folks I recommend this movie to. Uh, I have a little overlap with you, though. One reason I recommend the movie to some people... It, it does follow the, uh, the good old 70s trope. It is a demystifying, a deconstruction of the Western and a little bit of American history, which I think is why it has the reputation it does. My second reason, I think it's full of very entertaining vignettes, but it does constantly keep losing its narrative through line. And then three is really just a gut reaction from me. I'm dropping any semblance of academics here. Number three, I personally don't think that any of these characters are interesting enough to carry a film this long. The movie is not egregiously long. It's two hours and 15 minutes, but it is a bit of a drag to me. So I think it's, it's going to be a tough sell to me to recommend a Western to folks because it does drag that long. And I think if you got a long movie, you got to have interesting characters to fill it. All this to say, here's, here's my overarching thing on our episode. Uh, I think it was episode 32. It was Grant Torino with training day back when we were doing double features and i famously i'm surprised karen didn't bring this up i famously did a total hatchet job on gran torino i don't like the movie and i'm actually still proud of the episode i think it's probably the best i've ever explained why i think it's a bad movie but i mentioned in that episode i think clint eastwood's made a handful of really great movies and i did say that the outlaw josie wells was a pretty good movie I do think The Outlaw Josie Wales is a good movie, but it is pretty constantly touted as one of the greats. Our book, A Thousand One Movies You Must See Before You Die, the essay opens with, like, one of the all-time great westerns and undoubtedly Clint Eastwood's best. And I instantly go like... <laughs> um, but I know it has that reputation. There's a lot of Eastwood fans, especially, who would agree, and there is a dialogue out there about this movie i mean it's not a current dialogue it really kind of surfaces 
in like the 90s or the early 2000s about like how this one really needed to be reevaluated, that it was just as good as Unforgiven, which I, I kick against. And, you know, we can talk about that in the Unforgiven episode we do. I I never have connected with Josie Wales the way I've wanted to as a true blue Western fan. There's a lot about it that I think I see the appeal, but it doesn't really work for me. And I actually, a lot of your points, I'm going to agree with you. So I, I'm going to be kind of devil's advocating all over the place. I'm going to be making excuses for the movie uh, because I want to like it more than I do. And then I might just be trying to be a foil to you. But however way it shakes out, the people I do recommend the movie to, Western fans, go for it. Eastwood fans, no doubt. I think if you are a holdout on the Western genre, you're the folks I don't recommend the movie to. I got got a whole list of stuff that I will throw your way first to get you interested into the genre. Then we can talk about uh, Josie Wales. So that is where I'm standing uh, as far as I can go spoiler free. Adam, how about you? Anything else you want to talk about spoiler free before we move into some specifics? You kind of touch on something and and, and spoiler free for sure I can do. But I just think that and, and I'll probably bring this up later, but as far as the Western genre goes, it is, and I, I will admittedly say that it is not a genre that I have, I have uh, dragged the depths of. I know that I, I can easily see more. I've only seen a handful of, of like the John Ford films, only a handful of like John Wayne films. But I will say that I've seen a lot of the iconic ones, not all of them, but a lot of them. And those are all ones that I, I would recommend for, for one reason or another. and. And and I think part of one of my reasons of not advancing the Western genre, I, I list that because there's only so much, you know, it's not it's not a book of a thousand and one Westerns you must see before you die, right? It's it's movies in general. And so <laughs> if I've got to help, you know, help people narrow down the Westerns that they gotta see, this this just isn't gonna be one of them. And I'm so excited for this because I, I know an, another thing that uh I, I love having you on the show to talk about or to talk with. Is, is we we actually are kind of diametrically opposed on our philosophy about the book because I know you very famously um, are critical of the book for being extremely back heavy. That uh, you know the 21st century is vastly underrepresented, and the, as a counterpoint, that's kind of what I love about it. I like that it's talking about old movies because old movies are kind of my uh, thing that I love, and I wish more of those were seen. So I I'm excited to bring that into the conversation as well because I think there's merits on both sides. Um. Okay, I, I think we should roll into it. Uh, so this is a, not a huge recommendation. I'm coming in as the positive one here saying if you're a Western fan, if you're an Eastwood fan, if you're an Eastwood fan, you, you don't need my recommendation. You've already seen. But if anything we've said has intrigued you, you can find the movie on any of the uh, standard VOD outlets for four bucks. You can rent it. It's You get some bang for your buck. Uh, as we'll talk about, this is a, a Western through and through. You're going to get a lot of the tropes. You're going to get some things deconstructing those tropes. Uh, your mileage may vary on it, but if anything we've said has interested you, uh, go check it out. But if you haven't seen the movie and don't want it spoiled, you will need to uh, ride off into the sunset right now. Because from here on out, we are going to be talking spoilers for the outlaw, Josie Wills. You're the Grey Rider. You would not make peace with the blue coats. You may go in peace. I reckon not. Got nowhere to go. And you will die. I came here to die with you. I'll live with you. Dying ain't so hard for men like you and me. It's living that's hard. 
And all you've ever cared about has been butchered or raped. Governments don't live together. People live together. In governments, you don't always get a fair word or a fair fight. Well, I've come here to give you either one or get either one from you. I came here like this so you'll know my word of death is true. And that my word of life is then true. The bear lives here. The wolf, the antelope, the Comanche. And so will we. Now, we'll only hunt what we need to live on, same as the Comanche does. And every spring, when the grass turns green and the Comanche moves north, you can rest here in peace, butcher some of our cattle, and jerk beef for the journey. The sign of the Comanche. That will be on our lodge. That's my word of life. And your word of death? It's here in my pistols, and there in your rifles. I'm here for either one. These things you say we will have. We already have. That's true. I ain't promising you nothing extra. I'm just giving you life and you're giving me life. And I'm saying that men can live together without butchering one another. It's said that governments are chiefed by the double tongues. And there is iron in your words of death for all Comanche to see. And so there is iron in your words of life. No signed paper can hold the iron. It must come from men. The words of ten bearers carries the same iron of life and death. It is good that warriors such as we meet in the struggle of life or death. It shall be life. All right, Adam, let's get this bloodbath going. Um, I, I just want to start with your first point. You, so your first point, you don't recommend this movie to anybody. You say, uh, Josie Wales, he's not an iconic Eastwood role. Nor does he really do anything different than this role. This this is the the Clint Eastwood role, um, and in some ways, I, I very much agree with this point. So, how about I'll turn it over to you first? Run with this point a little bit more, and we can back and forth on it. Talk to me about why this is a big mark against the movie. Sure. Well, I, I think when I when, when I think of Clint Eastwood, and again, and I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm a big like the biggest Clint Eastwood fan, but you know you. Nor will I. And, and but you get to you get to think about him not only as as an actor, but as a producer and a director, right? But it, if I think about him, him as performer, right? And you know, oh, few people are so lucky to have so many iconic characters that they've played, right? I mean, I, Harrison Ford, right, with with Han Solo and Indiana Jones, right? He's he has these two roles that like he he will be remembered. When like after this, when this planet eventually just explodes, the aliens will know Harrison Ford, right? So he's he's got that, and Eastwood. <laughs> That's because he's going to be flying in the trench, blowing it up. Exactly, exactly. Uh, uh, with Chewie right next to him. Um, but he, but but Eastwood also has a bunch of these, right? I mean, he, you know, he he has all of the the Man with No Name, all the the Dollars trilogy movies. Obviously, I've most probably most famously for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. But uh, you know, a fistful of dollars and a few, for a few dollars more. Um, but then he also has Dirty Harry, and that what what there's five of those movies, I think. Like there's a the whole slew of Dirty Harry movies, and Dirty Harry yeah. is an iconic character. And then when you talk about the western that really, really tipped things on its axis, he's he's also played Will Money in Unforgiven. And so, and and as a as a non Western non Eastwood expert, like I can point to those movies and go, there are things happening here 
that are interesting. And, and I'm so I love the the point you made, and I'm sure we'll expand upon it later about none of the characters in this movie being interesting enough to hold down an entire movie. I agree, and I don't know if it's just because of the character or his performance or the way that the the script kind of loses focus from time to time. But all of, like, but Will Money, Dirty Harry, uh, particularly the man with no name, even a movie that I and I I know I mentioned, but a movie that I'm still not high on with High Plains Drifter. There's more. I'm more intrigued by the mystery of who this person is in High Plains Drifter than I am in Josie Wales, and I. I yeah, I just I just have a lot of problem with the way that that character is presented. So uh, I'm going to go all over the place here, but a lot of points here are going to dovetail. And I'm even going to take from your, your second point is like the, the reach exceeds the grasp. And I think I actually agree with that. And I think in the character of Josie Wales, it's most prominent. And, and here I think is the problem is... I think Josie Wales is trying to be a new kind of Eastwood character. Man with no name and the stranger from High Plains Drifter. They operate under these very enigmatic circumstances. They're tough guys. They're silent. Certainly some of this applies to Josie Wales. But, you know, you you think about where this movie opens up and it's Clint Eastwood plowing a field in a goofy hat and, uh, you know, this, this horrific thing, his house is burned down, his wife is raped, his wife and his son are killed. And there is this moment, I mean, I mean we're talking four minutes into the movie, like this, that house is on fire in two and a half minutes and all this has gone down in the first four. And he's there, he is, uh, he's pounding the cross into the ground and he's sobbing and he's feeling a very real emotional loss. And you look at that and you go, this is the new Eastwood character. Absolutely. And... And then the the thing is, is that I think the movie just can't decide what to do with him after that, because I take a lot of issues with the ways in which the movie is written about and remembered, specifically this thing that to folks, the movie is about a guy who hardens himself and isolates himself and through this collection of misfits and outcasts, like learns to be a part of a community again, who learns to not want to be alone. And I, I just, I watch the movie and say, I don't think I'm watching the same movie because he's constantly back and forth on this. I don't think at any point in the movie, aside from a couple flippant, like, Oh, I guess everybody's riding with us now. He never seems like adamantly against being around people. He's fine to be with, um, Jamie, the Sam bottoms kid. He's, at no point has he seemed pissed off that he's dragging this kid around, even though the kid is like dying and he makes points about like, I don't want you dragging blood all over Missouri, but it's not like you get the read that this guy hates that he's not on his own. He, yeah, he, he opts out of going to the surrender and, you know, because he refuses to surrender, he refuses to bow down to the union and the red legs who killed his family. But then, you know, his thing is he stays there, he watches and he comes riding to the rescue. And I'm like, are these the actions of a man who has chosen to self-isolate, who's done with humanity and community? And I just think that the, the characterization is constantly going back and forth because he has some moments where he's the man with no name again, where he's the cold, hard-blooded killer. You know, you, and you get some great lines. Uh, you're going to use those pistols or whistle Dixie is a great Eastwood line. But he, he's constantly jumping back and forth between the two. And so I, th- I think there was an attempt made to make Josie Wales something special, a special Eastwood character. And I think there's a lot of fans that would say like Josie Wales is the iconic 
to me, drives me nuts because I can't get a read on him. Which is funny because that's what's so appealing about other characters that he's famous for. Is you can't get a read on him, but that's kind of the point. Well, yeah, and I, I think, and and I think maybe to go a little more into the the way that the movie kind of goes back and forth with those ideas, the movie clearly starts. I mean, to me, this is such uh, not, and I don't mean simple, but like in terms of plot wise, like this is a revenge story. Yes. His, like you said. His wife and his son are killed like minutes into the movie. And I love there's a I love that little scene where he's basically like training himself how to be like a sharpshooter by just yes. shooting at a post over and over and over again. Like and again, this is like maybe one minute later. Right. And all of these things, there's a lot of a lot of good storytelling, a lot of like like taking out the exposition dump and doing it visually. And that's great storytelling. Right. That's that's all great. And then, yeah, and then we get to the, the we have to surrender. Um, and of course, there's a big turn when the 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 red legs basically kill that entire that entire gorilla outfit there. And then we what, what happens is the the revenge side plot goes over here, and it's it, it, <laughs> yes, it gets put yes. to the side for a long time. Yes. And then we meander. We meet uh, we meet Lone Waity. And then we we meet like and then of course they have to cross they have to cross the river and we go into town and we meet the the I can't even think of her name right off the top of my head um the Laura Lee the, yes thank you Laura Lee and her mother um and then it's like once or twice like does it really come back up that oh yeah his his family the reason that he's even on this journey in the first <laughs> place comes back up and and while the, I guess that's not necessarily about the character so much. The, the back and forth of those things makes the character, makes Josie Wales, I, I, it's hard to know, is he anti-hero or is he the guy that we're rooting for? And it's, yeah, it's kind of all over the place. And, and I, I have to say this too, how, how can you root for somebody who spits tobacco juice on a dog? <laughs> that's, that's where he loses. Yep, I agree. It's like this is the opposite of saving the cat, right? This is the opposite of that. Like, and, and, I mean, and I mean the animal too. But like, like I, as a bit early on, I kind of got it. But the first time he spit on that dog, I'm like, okay, I'm Clint. I'm gonna let that one pass. Yeah. And then when he kept doing it, I was like, dude, how how can I be on your side? This dog is on your side, and you're you're being ah. Right. I didn't like it at all. Like, again, he's 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 got some moments where he just could not have pricklier edges. And then he has others where he's he's taking care of Jamie. He's like legitimately concerned. He's listening to him tell the story about his his dad sewed the shirts together. You know, it's there's this like weird tenderness mixed with this just complete sob. And I I don't know. There's a part of me that kind of wants to applaud. He's going for it. I know kind of a part of Eastwood's editing routine is he kind of likes his movies to venture off into this the side adventures. But I I'm with you that. In a way, I want to. I would like to say that the movie's trying to deconstruct the revenge subplot that's so familiar to so many westerns. Because the the movie explicit the movie explicitly says like why they're doing it when they ride away from the massacre, and uh, Sam Bottoms is like, "Don't hold up on account of me." And he basically says like, "Well, there's posse's all over. If we don't stop to think, we're gonna die. So like, our job is to get through the Indian nations." And so you're like, okay, like. I understand like why he's not going in guns blazing now. He's trying to play it smart, but again, the, the movie goes so long. And then by the time you get there, he's losing this revenge thing. And I think the movie wants you to believe like, well, that's the point he's, he's losing 
you know, his desire for vengeance. But then it's like, why, why are we still working with this? Why are we still cutting back to Fletcher and Ter- yeah. Terrell? And, and I, that's the other thing is, you know, let's talk to my point about none of the characters being particularly memorable. It bums me out that uh, a character with as interesting a backstory as Captain Terrell registers as such a non-entity. Because I think there's a very interesting... I think it's a very interesting thing here that, you know, a, a marauding group of raiders kind of uh, implicitly sanctioned by the Union eventually becomes out and out enforcers of it. They they gain legitimacy because they won the war. And he has a couple speeches about, you know, there's no wrong or there's no end to doing the right thing or something, you know, this this idea that he may he maybe believes that. But, you know, it, it just dumps him. And so by the end, it's a cool confrontation with Josie just firing empty chamber after empty chamber before they have the struggle with the sword. But it's like, you really needed a better bad guy if the whole point is that it's this never-ending trek following, hounding this guy to the ends of the earth. Like, we we straight up lose that gang for 40 minutes. <laughs> you forget yep. they were there. Yep. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. And I... I uh... You know, I, I, cause it's me, you know, I, I did buy, I got the Blu-ray and I, I, I watched it and I watched and I did watch the hell hath no fury and the, uh, by the way, God, whoever they got to narrate that was really selling the hell out of this movie. Um, Milius, dude, John, oh, John Milius, right. John Milius, Milius that's right. <laughs> oh, holy um, shit. But he, uh, but they talked about the Terrell character as if this was one of the, like, like if, if Eastwood's role was one of the iconic roles, like that Terrell was one of the iconic right. villains and, and I, you are really overselling this and I totally agree. And again, I don't know if that's a com like it's gotta be a combination of the way it was on the page, the way it was executed. And then the way that it was cut together, because like all of those things don't present a menacing character that leads to this big showdown. In fact, I, for a while there, I thought the big showdown was going to be with 10 bears with our boy right. from one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Right. Yeah. Uh, Will Sampson. But it, but it would, it just, the ending with Terrell almost seemed anticlimactic, especially because I thought that the the kind of the 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 standoff at the house at the end was was pretty good. I thought that was shot pretty well. Yeah. And then we have this I what I just thought was a pretty mediocre hero versus villain scene. I I like the fire like the like four guns that just don't have any bullets left. I, I, I really like that push in. Sure. And I'll I'll agree. I, I think there's one thing to me that saves the the final shootout from being basically an afterthought, and it is to my point about you know demystifying the western genre. It it is that the movie is clearly leading up to the classic, the the John Ford Howard Hawks like the Comanches are going to raid the the homestead. Like everything's leading to that, and then it is resolved with cool heads and well spoken words. And, you know, the, then that subverts to like, no, it's the Union soldiers <laughs> that are coming. And so, you know, I'm like, OK, this is a subversion thing. It's still delivering the big action set piece you want out of a Western, but it's subverting, you know, what you would expect, which we can talk about that in a minute with how the, the film treats Native Americans. So I, I gave that one a, a pass, but it, it was, again, like it was so close to being an afterthought just <laughs> to say, well, we got to have the big shootout. And there's one other thing in that section I kind of want to say in defense of the character of Josie Wales. I don't know how you feel about it. I really love the scene where he is walking them through how they're going to defend it. That he is giving everybody a job. He is talking them through how you keep your head in a gunfight and saying that when hope is lost, you've got to get mean. He's basically laying out like what his philosophy has been since he put his wife and son in the ground. And and I love that one because it kind of reinforces what was going through his head at that moment at the very beginning, but also that it is this 
this second chance he gets that he has probably been stewing on this for years about like if if I had known like how would I have defended my home and now he's getting this chance to do it so he is laying out this game plan he's he's just like had from the beginning is how I read it and and I liked that moment a lot I thought it was a great Eastwood moment that was booing up a lot of stuff because the the romance with Laura Lee is not working for me at all. Uh, but I, I like the moment. I definitely agree on on the the romance thing. I I don't think that that's there. Um, but also, yeah, the I love a good uh showing us the plan. I you know and just because it ties back in. Uh, there's actually a great jumping point. We just recorded uh an episode for a thousand one by one on Seven Samurai, and yes, sir, we talked about. When Kambe and his, he's basically like, you know, here's all, here's what we got to do. And if shot well and given a lot of detail, it, it totally uh, pulls you in, which of course, to prep for that, I also watched Magnificent Seven and they do a similar thing there, which of course is a remake, but it's a Western. Yeah. And so here there's, there's these links kind of bringing everything together. But yeah, a good, a good scene where the leader, the person in charge can set you up properly to, to do what you need to do, to defend, to kill, to shoot, whatever it is. Those, if done well, uh, I, I think maybe part of what I can say here is that I think because that's done well, it's, it's part of why I like the shootout so much because we know they're ready. It's not just that they're ready, you know, because that would, it almost takes away like, how, how is Grandma and Laura Lee d- doing this, right? But when we, we, we you know, you give two minutes or so to show him prepping them and then it, it pays off with that. Yeah. And, and I agree, it was, it was a better shootout than I think it has many rights to be. Yeah. Okay, let's, uh, if, if you don't mind, let's kind of segue out of Eastwood a bit here. Let's, let's talk the genre as a whole, because there's another uh, point that you had thrown down that, uh, let me get it word for word here. You, you had said, you know, the, outside of not advancing Eastwood's persona in, in a Western, like this also is not advancing the Western genre. I think there's a couple areas in which it is trying to. But I think there are A, areas that have been done before and that Eastwood is kind of just bringing to the American studio system in, in its, you know, death rattle. Um, but they're, they're small moments, you know, they are the, um, the humanizing of the Native American characters and that, that Hell Hath No Fury documentary makes a point about saying like they, they have a sense of humor, which they had lar- they largely are deprived of in earlier Westerns. I think it's in... I I think in that final shootout they're trying to do it with Laura Lee's packing and like she kills a couple people and that's not you know the classic western thing is you know women cower but I'm I got to admit that like I'm I feel like I'm reaching there I'm really trying to play devil's advocate in terms of like was this a progressive western is it a great entry in revisionist westerns because westerns at this point it says 1976 they're they're really about to die for a while um, the, the 70s is not a great decade for Westerns. So this this feels like in, it's just trying to to reinforce the aesthetic that the spaghetti Westerns had introduced that the world feels more lived in it. It's dirtier. It's grimier. There's there's no white hats and black hats. The, the right thing in air quotes is not always clear. Our, our heroes we're supposed to follow aren't likable. They spit on dogs. You know, th- these are all things that Clint Eastwood is bringing from his time learning under Sergio Leone. He's trying to bring it to the American studio system, but it just kind of feels like this. I learned this. I'm bringing it. I'm, I'm trying to make progress here, but it doesn't feel like anything we hadn't seen before. And I think you had kind of mentioned that. So what are what are like your thoughts on this point about how it's not really advancing the Western genre? 
Well, and I, I think you mentioned it really, you, you, you phrase it very well that the seventies were not the, the boom time for the Westerns. I mean, and, and, uh, and not that it's a direct thing, but like, you know, genre pictures would take a huge swing, uh, with Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween. And then horror became, I think the popular drive in, like what, what's going to draw audiences to see them. Um, so yeah, so, so Westerns, they start to, they start to lose out. Um, but like the fifties and the sixties and like the, like, um, I don't want to make it like a direct comparison, but it's hard to not do it when you think about like, what are the movies I would recommend? And we keep mentioning like spaghetti Westerns. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, it's so funny. I was, I, I started this last night and uh, I fell asleep, so I didn't get to finish it. But, um, I started watching Django last night. Yeah. And, uh, Sergio Carbucci's. The, yes. With, with Franco Nero. And I, I only got 30 minutes in. But already I was like, this is more of what I want. I either, it either needs, for me, it's like, and I, and maybe this is where, you know, I'm being way too specific, but like, it needs to be a bit in on the joke or like in on the, like, so like Django or Good, the Bad and the Ugly, where it's like, yes, the, um, I want to say even, uh, uh, Eastwood in the documentary call them a bit more operatic. They're a bit bigger. Oh yeah. And, and, and they are. And I think that's what pulls us in. Or I want, I want it to feel gritty right and that's where something like unforgiven like you're in the like the mud and it's in the muck and it's it's new and it's and we're still trying to figure shit out and um and that's why i like i really respond to those those kinds of westerns but like there's a i think and for me it's it's tricky because there's a difference between like the enigmatic uh man with no name from like the good the bad and the ugly versus even like high plains drifter and and Outlaw Josie Wales, where the the our our character lead antihero, you know, like wh- however we want to describe them, they are the cho- some of the choices being made don't seem to align with who they who they are and what they want, right? Um, there's a weird there's a weird moment in Outlaw Josie Wales where it seems and 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 maybe I'm I'm climbing up the wrong tree here, but it seems like he is trying to possibly get it on with uh, 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 Geraldine Keems, but she has apparently slept with Lone Waity with, with Chief Dan George. Um, and, and obviously, like, like, Josie Wales isn't mad and like, like life goes on. But I don't, be- like, I mean, or I guess maybe, maybe let's pause right there for a second. Do, is, is that your thought? Like, it's the middle of the night, he's creeping around, and it seems to me like he's looking for her. I, I hadn't read it that way, but it, I, I read it as like he heard some noise and he's going to check it out because, you know, oh. they're, they're on the run like any, any you know, deer that's walking by, he's got to take as a serious threat. And, and then I thought it was you, kind of... You are a much better person than me. Yeah, like. well, well, I think it registers, I think it's because he registers to me as like asexual. Again, the, the concept of this budding romance with Laura Lee, I think is, you know, trying to play on like... Oh, does he see his wife and her? You know, they're both blonde and stuff. But it's like, well, we have no frame of reference for the relationship he had with his wife. Yeah. So it's it's like, Josie, Josie Wales is a, a a loving, a romantic figure doesn't register to me at all in the movie. So I I never considered. It. I just thought oh, he heard a twig snap. He's gonna go make sure. Yeah. Um. But but you know. But in terms of just like the uh the west like the western genre and and um like movies like that. So so like Josie Wales kind of sits in this this weird kind of middle ground where it doesn't commit to any real choices. And, and I think, and I think you can feel that when you see the movie, um, 
whether it's plot lines or character beats, it doesn't fully grab on. And and normally that doesn't even bother me. Like again, I don't. I, now I'm just telling you what I watch. Um. Uh. I watched From Dusk Till Dawn last night too. Mm-hmm. Uh. Which is just one of my favorite guilty it's, pleasures. It's and like, so good. The big swing there, like some people don't <laughs> like it. I <laughs> I love it. I it's love amazing. that it just it just switches. Um. But it's a it's a it's a very specific and blatant choice. And here they don't seem specific and, and they're kind of vague and not in a mysterious way. Not like, you know, like the man with no name. It just seems like they didn't really think all of it through or they thought that they had enough. And, and again, for me that enough wasn't enough. Yeah. And this is interesting because we've kind of had a run of episodes here lately that have danced around this idea of, I guess what you would call quaint progressivism, like th- things in their day that I think, we're we're trying to make a, a big push forward in terms of representation or writing past wrongs that in our day and age just seem like, oh, wow, you thought that was a big deal. You know, we, the last episode, uh, She's Gotta Have It. You know, we talked a lot about Spike Lee, you know, really pushing the envelope for 87, but now it seems almost sexist. Um, and, and I think, you know, to, to speak to your point about like, well, are characters making decisions that seem in line with what they want? I, I think you have to remember for the an hour of 15 hour and a half of Josie Wales is, well, we just have to get into the Indian nations. That's like, his whole goal is just to get out from under the posse that's hunting him in there. And so everything is about going on these side quests to, you know, getting there because people keep getting in his way. He's got to get Lone Wadi a horse. Um, you know, they get kidnapped by the Comancheros. So, and I think that the movie is taking those side quests so that it can give Chief Dan George playing Lone Wadi, like these speeches he has that are, acknowledge the horrors of the Trail of Tears and that they're, you know, they, they played the game and they, they got dressed up, they dressed like Abraham Lincoln, they, they went and made impassioned pleas about how their land was being stolen and their families were being killed and they got just this trite newspaper, you know, endeavor to persevere, this nonsense maxim. And so I think the movie is like stopping cold on Josie's quest to acknowledge that and and to say like we understand the western has really been a part of the problem in terms of representing these folks so here's their platform to acknowledge these horrors and and in a narrative way trying to connect this outsider thing that all these characters have in common but you know by today's standards it's like really that's the that's the whole point there that's why the movie stops cold for 45 minutes like that really doesn't seem radical enough yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree, and uh, and I will say, you know, living where I live and and teaching where I teach, you know, uh, Native American studies is is huge here. We we actually they we have courses that teach Ojibwe, which is a native language, which I think is just really really cool, and um and I've seen I I went to a film festival this year and I watched this documentary called Imagining the Indian and, and how. Native Americans are represented uh, in in pop culture, and uh, it was a lot. A lot of it had to do with um, uh, franchise sports and um, mascots and, and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I I do think that it's obviously an important part of our history and and totally worthy of being in a film. I just don't think this is the one. I mean, I think it. And actually, it was funny. I I have not seen this movie in so long, but. But halfway through this movie, I started yearning for Dances with Wolves, which is long. And, and I know it kind of gets this, you know, oh, it's too long. And it, it, that movie probably meanders as well. And obviously, it's, sure. it, you know, the whole Dances with Wolves 
uh, Goodfellas thing. Right. But from what I can remember about Dances with Wolves is it immerses him into that world. And like part of him is like actually seeing how they live and and trying his best to understand that. And that to me was and I know it's not a, it's not a Western in the sense of like I, I'm out for revenge or anything like that. But we're in the old West and, and we're watching all of this happen. And it does it does feel like here here here, Chief Dan, Dan George, here's some time. Say some stuff. And I think it's great that they actually had Native American actors in this. Of course, that's, a, that's amazing. That's the, yeah, that's the um, big push. Yeah. But I just, you know, like a movie on the Trail of Tears. You know? Like yeah. It, it, it's obviously, it, it's not this movie, but, but it does feel a bit like, you know, we'll, we'll show them we're thinking. And, and you know, and it does, it does feel a bit, a bit kind of just placed in rather than given like any real, you know, real focus. Right. Which I, again, can appreciate Trojan horsing that message, you know, that you think you're coming in <laughs> for the, the Clint Eastwood kick an ass movie, which you are definitely getting. Like, his, the body count is unreal in this movie. So I, yeah. I appreciate, yes. you know, you're, you're not just going to stick to that, that I think that's what a lot of folks like about Clint Eastwood. It's what I like about him, that he definitely has his reputation ethically politically all that stuff but he makes movies that do seem to defy that he he is an artist and he does seem open to other perspectives he seems like a sensitive guy you know he's he's not john wayne um even though he kind of plays him sometimes and and so i appreciate that yeah and and i i mean not that this is the the, the platform for this but like politics and personal opinions aside like that's i i don't that's not to what we're talking about um and uh yeah, so so oh, just feel feel like maybe it's important to put it out there, but uh, um, but yeah, I got I it's I have it on right now, and and you know Eastwood is about to go talk to uh, to ten bears, and they're about to have their their moment, and you know, and again, and and I feel like I'm looking at all of the extras seem to be Native Americans as well, which again is great. I I do think it's a it's a good step in the right direction in terms of Hollywood and and uh, how we make films and who we who we show. I just again, I I think the the story being told within that is is not it either needs to be cut or it needs to be given way more focus. Yeah, I mean, I think you I think you worded it very well. That there's a lot of reach here, there's a lot of ambition, and that is a thing to latch onto the movie for. But the the grasp isn't quite there to to reel it all in and to focus it. I, I wanted to ask you your thoughts on Clint Eastwood's. Uh, claim that the the movie at its heart, like the the core message, that the movie is anti-war. Your thoughts? I don't know if enough is is shown to really get behind that. I mean, the, the, after he joins the guerrillas, there's a montage of battle scenes. I mean, and it's it's not done in a way that makes me feel like wars hell right it seems the music the score is kind of big and bombastic you know um so i i i mean that could have easily been what he thought but again i from what from how i saw the movie as is i don't get that i don't i don't think it's like pro-war but i definitely no. don't get anti-war i i see sections where he's getting at and, and it, i brought it up because the the speech to 10 bears i really like the scene and again a, th a thing to uh you know Say, hey, maybe Josie Wells is a new kind of Eastwood character. Like an Eastwood character never has a speech like this. He never even talks this much. Um, but you know, that that whole speech is about 
I mean, it's about a lot of things, but you know, his, his big point is, you know, people can live together without mastering each other and, and governments don't live together. People do. Um, and, and this undercurrent of, you know, even the last line that we all died a little bit in the war seems to be tying it in as, as most seventies movies are to government disillusionment and, uh, particularly geared towards Vietnam. And it's, again, I'm like, I, I am all for a Western that's going to address those messages, but they are so few and far between here. It's hard for me to see it because I, I think he's walking a line. I definitely agree with you. I don't think the movie's pro-war. I think that even a lot of the more uh, kick-ass gunfight moments are played like quite horrifically. The, the massacre at the front of the movie is portrayed as such, you know, the Gatling gun being turned on the guys being duped into swearing a fake oath is brutal. And then you have this mix of, you know, this yeehaw moment of Josie Wales getting on the Gatling and turning it on them, which is a cool moment, but I do think is still played as like, this is carnage. This is, this is uh, kind of fun, but kind of not. So I, I think he's kind of having it both ways there a little. I see sections of the movie that support it, but at the end I'm like, I really don't feel like this is the, the driving message of the film because I think it's just going off in way too many directions. And, and I wanted to pose the challenge to you um, what do you personally think like the central theme or the central message of the movie is? What's this movie about to you? It's so funny. Can we, can we say that a movie is about, isn't, cause I don't know that it's anti-war, but I think it's, I think it's definitely about striving for peace. Um, I, I do think that maybe redemption is part of it as well. Um, but it's, it's it's tricky. I mean, I think a lot of it is, and maybe because given given the, and I know that he, it's hard to even say this because he does still he gets his revenge. You know, he he kills Terrell at the end, but I think it's somewhere in there. It's it's probably this idea of acceptance, right? That and it's it's that scene with with ten bears, right? That we can you know we can live by each other, and that we can we'll, we'll you know we can keep to ourselves when we need to, but we can come together when it's important. And I think that that's there. I I think that that's what the movie is going for, but it, it, and it's just, it's so, you know, we, we get that scene where the, yes, the, you know, um, um, uh, 10 bears and, and Josie Wales have come together and everything seems like it's fine, but then we still get another, we got a, you know, a big shootout. So, and, and granted we can't just, it, things aren't just peaceful. You know, if somebody comes at you with guns, you can do your best to not retaliate, but they might shoot you. So, it's it, it's tough to just say that this is about peace or acceptance when there is so much bloodshed. Um, and so it, maybe it's also just partially a cautionary tale about, you know, what happens when, uh, what happens when opposing views lead to strife like this. And obviously, I mean, historically, yes, we're coming out of the Civil War just because the war was ending didn't mean that people just stopped being racist, you know, yeah. or stopped having their views. So I get that that change takes time, and and maybe that maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. That all you know, perseverance. All all good things. Endeavor come to, to persevere. Those who <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. I, I like that. Yeah, yeah. To me, it's it's this hard thing because I feel that for all of the um, the big grandstanding moments and the speeches and the the obvious indicators that the movie does have a, a heart and, and a message it wants to convey that I I at, at its center it doesn't read that way to me. To me, the movie feels like it is just this observation of 
the brutality of survival. Be- and because, you know, in, the, in that speech, Ten Bears has this line at the end that he says something like, it's, it is good that warriors like you and I meet in the struggle of life. And he takes a beat and death. And it kind of like conveyed to me that this, this, I- this kind of almost 70s nihilistic idea that the movie you know, it's about like life is just hard and there's, there's horrors and you just kind of hang in there any which way you can. And sometimes you do that by flying solo. And sometimes you need people like, because it's so all over the place, you know, it's hard for me to say that the movie does have this clear message it wants to convey. Yet everything about it seems like it does because there's these speeches. It's, it's quite the artistic Western, you know, it's not just a, a shoot 'em up which again, I also appreciate. And I love the world that it portrays. You just nailed it that um, it, and in other ways that it's demystifying the Western genre where, you know, the, the Union Cavalry is your go-to save the day good guys that, you know, they're the bad guys in this, but also that you said that it, it acknowledges just the moral gray area that the Senator has the line about the victors go, the spoils, and, you know, the Raiders become captains and generals, you know, they're legitimized just because they won and it could have easily gone the other way. And and also that the way that the Union is reconciling the country and preserving this peace out the war's over is massacring its more extreme elements because they don't feel there's a way to just let bygones be bygones. You know, it's easier to just feed these guys and then kill them quickly. And that's you know, kind of a reality of American history is it's how some conflicts have been resolved. So I, I like that the movie does that in its push for this grittier Western. Um, and I, I'll, I'll say some positives for the movie. I love the way it's shot. I think it looks great. I think the, the earth tones on the color palette, these greens and browns it has with this blues look wonderful. There's some shots. It's not a, it's not a Vista type of western there's very few of those like monument valley-esque shots there's a couple of them to add the grandeur but it's, it's very like tight-knit and close in which i think serves it well if it's supposed to be a movie about like these group of people kind of just meandering trying to get through life um it's it's a bit of a tangent i just kind of wanted to throw out a positive on the movie that i actually really really like the way it looks no, I for sure. I, there's a. I know that that montage has had that has this like real blue hue to it, and it, and when we finally kind of come out of it, it, it it kind of fades away. But the way that it's sort of it almost set, it takes the color out, and it's it is and it is during those that war montage. I think there's something there was an interesting choice there, and I agree. The it's not trying to be flashy. The directing, and you're totally right about the the Monument Valley big sweeping vista shots. They're not really in here, but it's it's very. I, I don't, this is going to sound like an insult. It's not, it's very adequately directed, right? It doesn't seem yes. it's, he's not trying to be flashy and he's giving us exactly what we need. Which is kind of the point with him from what I've heard. And again, you know, Kieran, Kieran might be screaming into the mic right now because he knows Eastwood so much better than I do, but I really like the, the legend of Eastwood as the director, his style of being the guy who is calm and he's cool headed. He knows how to make actors feel comfortable because he's been there. And and the overarching thing that he is a guy who doesn't obsess over like what's the perfect thing. He shoots it if it looks good. He's not going to obsess over like it can look even better. Let's waste another half day. And and there's a part of me that I really respects that. So I agree with you when you say like the movie's adequately directed. That I think like yeah, there is not a lot here that is like oh my gosh, this is a whole other level. But at the same point, like it's it's really not supposed to. It's still pretty pretty early in his career 
he this wasn't the game plan you know he they had philip kaufman directing for a couple days before that wasn't working out and clint stepped in so this you know they're really shooting from the hip on this one and he still comes in under budget and under you know two days ahead of schedule i think so i i honestly think like knowing all that backstory it's like this is pretty good like to have a movie that's like his baseline competently directed as this is actually pretty solid especially considering there's I'm not saying he never lost his mind on set, but a lot of the things you hear, you see in the making of documentaries is he's still very calm and level-headed, even though this must be an incredibly uh, stressful situation. So I'll give him props for that. Well, and clearly, you know, I I mean, at least at the time that it was released, we're definitely in the minority because I, and not that, who who cares about this, but 91% critical and audience scores on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, and I only bring it up because to go back with the the well beloved iconicness that people have bestowed on it. Um, I I had to search kind of high and low because uh, I wanted to read some reviews, particularly some negative reviews. And um, the Richard Eater original New York Times review is is pretty scathing, and it's about the only review I could find of its initial release that seemed to buck the the positivity around it. Um. Which I, I appreciate it, and it really and and again for a for a uh, a contemporary review of the film, um, I just wanted to bring it up because it's sort of what we've been talking about. It ends with the movie tends to muffle and sell short whatever points it may be trying to make. There seems to be a ghost of an attempt to assert the romantic individualism of the South against the cold expansionism of the North. Every unionist is vicious and incompetent, whereas Wales, despite his spitting is really a perfect gentleman. There is something cynical about this primitive one-sidedness in what is not only a historical context, but happens also to be our own historical context. To the degree a movie asserts history, it should at least attempt to do it fairly. That's the end of the review, but there's a lot more in there as well. Yeah, yeah. I, You know, I got to say, a perfect gentleman, I don't think, would just let um, the rape of a Native woman just fly by. That's the moment I didn't bring us up with the uh, the spitting on the dog, which is definitely the knee jerk. Like this guy's a monster, but um, yeah, little little moonlight. He's just he's just gonna let it happen. He's uh, hey, will will these gentlemen be able to conduct business soon? <laughs> Again, this like what is this character? Um, yeah, yeah. I I think I think he's on to a lot there. I honestly think I I can see why the movie was popular. It's very, it's very, I don't know, very, but it's very anti-government. It it fits into a lot of that stuff we think about in the 70s zeitgeist about the disillusionment with the government, rebelling against federal government in particular, being anti-war, acknowledging, you know, loss of life is a tragic waste. Like it, I really see like how it's a movie of its time that worked really well. And I, I honestly, I don't, I'm not going to ramble more on this. You tell me. If you had to, you know, step outside of your shoes for a second, the movie is still pretty beloved. What do you think are the elements that folks are still latching onto and and see this as like this is an Eastwood western. This is a perfect western. Cuz cuz this was um when I revisited your High Plains Drifter episode, Ian when he was alluding to this movie, he said he perfected everything he was trying to do without law Josie whale. He, he, he acknowledges in high plains drifter, my feelings too, that he loved the movie, but you know, he's, he's got to do some gymnastics or some things in there that are very unforgivable. And there's some things in there that are very sloppy, but it still works. 
And then he said, like, Josie Wales perfects it. And I just, I listened to that and was like, how? What are these things that are perfected in Josie Wales? To maybe answer some of that about, about why people might have liked it. Do you step out, step out of myself? I remember I had a conversation with my grandma uh, a few years ago, and I was telling her, it was right, would be basically it started up doing a thousand one by one. And, and I had mentioned kind of what we do and what movies we talked about. And I had mentioned uh, The Quiet Man, uh, John Ford mm. film, uh, John Wayne and, and Maureen O'Hara. And uh, Ian and I very much took that movie <laughs> out to the woodshed and just beat the <laughs> hell out of it. But my, my grandma talked about how much she loved that movie. She thought it was romantic and it was sweeping and she loved the heart. She thought it was heartfelt. She thought she bought the romance. She, she, she loved it, right? My grandpa too. Yeah, I, that, that was so an all timer for him, and one of the few movies we just disagreed on. Yeah, I mean, and and so you know, if I'm you know, if I'm in my, I'm trying to, I mean, I can't like, if I know of, if I know of Eastwood, especially from the Dollars trilogy, and he's he's somebody I know and appreciate in in the seventies, and he's making this movie that is it probably seems very progressive for the day. I mean, it, I know by today's standards, we've mentioned this. It's 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 not really, but you know, a movie taking real strides in, in, in who's getting cast and the story that it's telling your, you know, imagine being an Eastwood fan. You're, you're a dude and you want to go to the movies and you bring your gal and, but then there's also, Oh, he's doing it because, Oh, his wife was killed. And then there's this other potential love story. Right? So it, it, I could see this being popular and, and being a hit because while it is still a bang, bang, shoot 'em up Western, there are some ideals laden throughout the script. Now, we can sit back, uh, you know, 30, 40, however many, I don't know, years later and, and nitpick at, those, at the reasons why the script doesn't hold up. And it doesn't. But in the moment to see those things, it's going to be like in 30 or 40 years when people watch everything everywhere all at once, they're going to be like, this is, this is nonsense. And they might not be wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like they, they totally yeah, might yeah. be right. And so, well, well sure. Yeah. And, and I'll say, too, um, in, in terms of the movie's progressivism, one, it's not not progressive. Like, it's not one that I watch and I go like, oh, man, this is like it, I really see where they're coming from. And I, I think, it, you know, Chief Dan George and um, Geraldine. Oh, she plays Keems. Little Moonshine. Yes. Thank you. I, I actually quite like them. She, she actually, you know, I, I wish there was more with her. But, you know, I, I, I really like the characters. And, and kind of what I was getting at is like, I'm, I'm not judging the movie based on like it's progressivism. Like that's not how I gauge like for a, sure. a great movie from the past because it's, I, I am a big sucker for like, I have to consider this stuff in the context. Yeah. Um, I, I love King Kong. You know, King Kong is a horribly racist movie. I love it. And we've, we've taught, we've had an episode on King Kong. I've, ad I've addressed that stuff. So I, I see it. I really see like all the things that you were saying. I think it is almost this quintessential Eastwood movie because it is tackling his persona as a kick-ass guy who's never going to lose a gunfight, but it is going to deconstruct that image a little bit. It's going to show the guy practice. It's not going to open with him just being awesome. It's going to show him missing the fence post two times out of three. Yeah. And I really like that stuff. I, I think I was grappling with this question a lot going back to this the 1001 movies essay where it says it's a perfect western i thought well what is a perfect western because i hear this movie called that a lot and i th i think what people look for when they say it's a perfect western it, 
it has to walk this tightrope between it's got to follow the tropes and the iconography. It's got to have the things you want. You got to have the gunfights. You need a, like any Western that doesn't have a saloon scene can go to hell in my book. Like it's, I'm here for a good saloon scene. So it has to do that. But it, I think when folks say a perfect Western, it's also got to be acknowledging those things. It's got to be playing with them. It's got to be flipping them around. It's got to be saying something. And I think Josie Wales is trying to do that too. Really like where I'm coming down on the movie is I wish it was shorter. I wish it was more focused. I really can see some tweaks being made to this where I am on board and I am putting this in the same camp as Unforgiven. To me, it's, uh, I, I can't even remember. It's five or six movies into his filmography. I think it's an achievement for him, but I think it's a warm up. I think he's still finding his voice, his legs. And I think he's proving he's got the talent here. And that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm at. Cause I feel like I've dumped on the movie a lot and I really like the movie. I am there for almost every little vignette vignette and side adventure. It goes down. There's choices that are made that don't work for me. I, I think the, um, the attempted rape of Laura Lee is handled very exploitively. I don't think that it's mm -hmm. shot for the horrific act that it is. I think it is there to be a little titillating. Um, but there's, there's good, there's bad. I'm losing where I'm going with this. So I, I guess to say like, I, I kind of feel like I've made all my points I want to make, except to say that fairy scene sequence is awesome and so fun. And, uh, I think that's kind of where I want to let my case rest. What else do you want to talk about? I mean, we really, I mean, we hit on a lot of it. Um, I do, I will say I'm not a big, I think the, obviously there's a big, the plot wise it's there. I think, I mean, I think they know what the movie is trying to be. Some of the dialogue is, is a bit ham fisted. Um, I don't need to be told that you're scared of dying. You know, like I think, I think the Sam Bottoms character says that I'm like, I, I, I get you. I, I, I understand that. Um, and I'm, I, it sounds, it's going to sound weird, but I'm glad you, you mentioned the way that that, the attempted rape of, of Laura Lee was done. Cause I absolutely agree. I think it was there to, to, to see a woman naked for a little bit. I, and there are other moments throughout the movie where I feel like there's the moment where I think it's a, it's him and, and what is the Sam bottoms character name? I keep, Oh, Jamie, him and Jamie are like, they're caught, you know, and the, and then they're, they're like the couple of guys that catch him down by the water. And then of course, Josie Wales takes care of them, but like it's, and it's <laughs> uncle a, Leo. It's not a long scene. And it's not a bad scene, but it doesn't do anything new. It doesn't advance the story. It doesn't show us how good. I mean, I mean, it does show us how good Josie Wales is with a gun, but we get that late. We get that throughout the movie. And so when you when you start to tally up scenes like that and when your movie has five, six, seven, you know, every, you know, everybody's opinion is going to be different, but you, you can shorten it and you can tighten it up. And, may, and, you know, maybe a lot of problems are solved with that, with with tightening up the the script here a little bit editing it make it a, a you know and again you're right 215 isn't that long it's not an overly long movie but it feels it when it's a series of vignettes like that no it, it definitely it was a long 215 for me like you it was funny you were talking about dances with wolves which i do think goes on long but i was like i feel like this movie felt as long as dances with wolves does and and you also thank you you brought up another point and this actually came up on our last episode on she's gotta have it kind of another knock i have against the movie the same scene just goes on repeat over and over and over and over. That, that, that situation you just described, it's 
Hey, look what we got here. We caught Josie Wales. Oh, Josie's in a pickle. What's he going to... Oh, he's going to kill everybody. <laughs> over and over and over. And and that is to play to, like, there there is a satisfaction we get as an audience on, like, how's he going to get out of this one? Sometimes there's a, a good solution. I, I think that one stands out the best because it's not like something he does to get out of it. It's, it's Jamie is smart and fakes, you know, the, the story about, like, we robbed a bank, pa, here's the... And, you know, he dupes them. And that's how they get the edge. But, you know, it, it happens in the trading post. It happens all over the place. Yeah. The, the other one I like is, is the bounty hunter in uh, Santa Rio, because I really like that moment again for, for Josie, where they have the exchange about, you know, why, why are you a bounty hunter? You got to make a living somehow. Yep. Well, Diane's not a way to make a living. And I really love the moment where, you know, he scared the guy out. He walks out and he comes back and just says, I had to come back. And I actually, I'm, I think it's my favorite moment performance wise for Clint Eastwood here his face the look on his face when he says I know because it is not the tough guy cigar in the corner of his mouth it it is kind of a pained compassionate I I don't know if it's like you can't let it go I know what that's like you got to maintain this machismo image like are you committed to doing this thing you have to stand by your word like there's a lot of ways to take that line I know yeah but it, it adds that depth to just this same scene that's just like oh they caught him and he killed another 10 people. Sorry, I was stepping on your shoes. Anything else you want to say about the film? I mean, I guess without, without going into, I guess, really nitpicky things. And I mean, you, know, you already mentioned like, you know, Philip Coppin was set to direct and, and, and that didn't happen. But we hit the big things, you know, the, the, the movie meanders a bit too much. And, and for everybody who thinks that this movie is iconic, I think you probably saw it at a, at a particular time in your life. To before you saw other things or or know what that I guess means I, I'm really judging people there on that one. Um, I just think <laughs> that in terms of the perfect western, and that's going to be different for everybody. But I don't I don't think this encapsulates the perfect western. I think it takes parts of what makes a perfect western, but they're not. I don't think all of them are here, or if or if they are, they're not put in an order that makes it perfect for me. So here is my I, I had teased in spoiler free. There's this big ultimate question. Yes. As as we as Kieran has set us up to bookmark, this is this is the cap to your fourteenth episode of a thousand one by one. The question is, which movie do you like more? High Plains Drifter or the Outlaw Josie Wales? I mean, if if the question is simply those two movies, I would probably go for High Plains Drifter than the Outlaw Josie Wales. There it is. All right, why? How come? Um, because I think the movie makes me lean in. Like I, I just, I mean, I watched it again the other day, and um, I'm still not the biggest fan of it. But and I, and I don't remember if I said this in the episode. But part of what what keeps me interested is, you know, who who is Eastwood in that movie? I mean, I know he's just the stranger, but like, who is he? What are his purposes? You know, is is he related to the marshal who died? Is he? death or is he from hell or you know what you know there's there's a, and what's great is that you can however way you look at it it sort of justifies like he's a mean son of a bitch you know what i mean like like he yeah, and, yeah. and obvi- i mean through and through the 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 first day i'm in town rape aside and i don't say that flippantly like that that happens in the movie he still makes a lot of decisions that are like you know not not great um but like, but I think, I think, and I think what resonates with me is like, so in, in High Plains Drifter, when he's sort of pushing against authority and he gives the Native Americans in that shop, the blankets and the candy, 
you you see that and you go, I like I like this. I like how how he's pushing back here. And then in, you know, in Josie Wales, he's spitting on dogs. I'm like, no, fuck you. Don't, <laughs> come on, don't do this. Uh, yeah, walking that that tightrope back between like, do you like me? I'm gonna spit on a dog. And so I think the mis- the mystery is what pulls yeah. me in more. Okay, well there it is. I I have just been dying to know all week. <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, hey. Funny enough, like the um the thing that it came back to is we we have an episode on two Harryhausen movies. It was uh, Seventh Boys of Sinbad and Jason and the Argonauts. And it brought me back, because we had a similar thing at the end of that episode, like which one is better. And I'm a Seventh Voyage of Sinbad guy because it was kind of the complete package. It, it, was, a, it was less ambitious, but like it nailed everything it wanted to. And that's how I felt about this. I, I prefer High Plains Drifter. I think Josie Wales is a more ambitious movie. It looks a lot better. Like Eastwood is clearly learning a lot of things between the movies, but like High Plains Drifter, I don't know how I'm going to vote on it. I like, I love it, but I think it's going to be a stretch that it's going to get a cinema must for me for a lot of reasons you just mentioned. Yeah. Um, but it does have a focus and a, a vision and it gels with me. And I don't think all the decisions are right, but they, they make sense to me. And Josie Wales is just a little too swinging for the fences. I like a movie that just securely gets on third base, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think I think where I like High Plains Drifter a little more as well is the the focus of the town and like them having this, you know, this ultimate purpose of, you know, wanting to mine gold and that's, you know, that's their focus. They're like they're very money driven and and it it's blinding them to you know the choices they've made right and so and when people get that far they hire you know they hire these three guys and they're coming back to t- and so like we see we see the bad choices being made the repercussions of the actions and how they try to fix it and in in a movie post civil war i mean i could have used more of that in in josie wales yeah I- there's there's a lot. I don't know. I don't want to go in a lot with like the movie's handling of history. Yeah. It's like this this weird obsession. We talked about this on Birth of a Nation. This weird obsession Hollywood had with like all the stories we're telling are the Confederate sympathize. Like, where was this all coming? It drives me nuts to this day that Buster Keaton couldn't just make the engineer and the general union. Yeah. <laughs> like, and then I wouldn't have to apologize for loving that movie as much as I do. Um yeah, I. It is. It is a fascinating. I don't even want to call it a mess. I don't think oh, Josie Wales is a mess. I think it really works. Like seriously, the difference for me between bumping this up to a must is that fifteen minutes. The 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 fifteen minutes David Geffen reportedly told him to cut, and he said, "Well, I'm. We can do that, and then I'm going to walk across the street and make a deal with Paramount." And I'm just, I don't know. I'm just kind of like, I might have been with Geffen on this one, but the, the movie is what it is. It is a, it, it does feel like a firm artistic vision. It's not gelling with me. It resonates with a lot of people. And uh, those people are the ones ultimately who are going to decide where, the, where this one lands. So I have just appreciated having a really good conversation to be able to bounce ideas back and forth. So I thank you. Or are there any other just like, I, you got to get this out there ideas? No, no, I think I'm good. Okay. I could go on all, all Westerns. I always feel the pressure. I want to talk about this scene. I want to talk about how cool it is that the town is overgrown with tumbleweeds. I, I'll, I'll cut it off there. I think, we, like you said, we've hit the big ideas. The little things exist uh, with everybody's individual relationship with the movie. 
But before we leave, I, I cannot leave without putting it into a double feature with something to get a movie night recommend recommendation out for folks. So, uh, Adam, uh, the movie may be a little long, two, two hours, 15 minutes, but if you were going to program another movie to go with Josie Wales and a double feature, what are you going to pick? So, um, it, it won't probably won't surprise anybody to know that I'm going to pick something a bit more contemporary. This might not, I I'm actually looking at it right now on Wikipedia and it calls it a neo Western crime drama, which I read that and I'm like, I'm all in. Um, it's certainly in the movie that I'm double, that I'm going to double feature this with certainly has to do with revenge and trying to right some wrongs. Um, and it it's in Texas and it definitely has these sort of old school vibes in a very new movie. And I revisit this lately because we talked about another 2016 film on 1001 by one. And uh, I'm going to double feature this with hell or high water. Hell yes. Um, this movie's great. I, uh, I watched it a couple weeks ago when kind of when we were doing, we were doing La La Land and I was in the, the 2016 world and Taylor Sheridan really knocked it out of the park with the three films that he had written in this, in this chunk with this wind river and Sicario. And I, so I rewatched mm-hmm. hell or high water. And like, and again, talk about a movie with a message. Like it's not just about them trying to save the ranch that, that they have, but it's also about banks and, and like corruption and like, you know, just how much power they really have. It's not, you can't really blame a person because it's a corporation. And then, and then it's got this real talk about antiheroes and then antihero brothers who like one is a Ben Foster is definitely the more outlandish and, you know, crazy of the two. And Chris Pine is trying to help protect his family. And then of course, you know, we've got Jeff Bridges and Gil Cunningham who are the cops, but they're, they're almost put into a, uh, a position where like, we don't want them to succeed when really they're just doing their jobs, which I love, I love that, right. Where the antiheroes you root for, but you obviously know that you got, and, but the cops aren't done in a, in a bad, like they're not, um, caricaturish. They're just people no. doing their jobs. And I, th- it's shot beautifully and I love the script and I think it's just, it has a great sort of like, not anticlimactic ending, but like a very open ending where it's like we like who knows who ultimately who's gonna win. But I I just I love this movie. I think it's so good. Yeah, and I I do too. I wish I had more crosstalk, but I haven't seen it since it came ah, out. But I yeah. rem- I remember just it, it made my top ten of the year list. Obviously, I t- gushed about it, like all oh, the trappings of the western, and I'm the western guy. And but um yeah the the even handedness and the the update on like the bandit outlaw story and and fitting very thematically with this movie about the how do you go up against the system and yeah. and where do people where do people operate within that feud are they agents of it can we see them as individuals like how far into it do they have to be before we mask them in as just part of the system and not people you know it's a great pick. I, I really, really need to revisit this one because Hell or High Water what left a, a big mark on me. I, I own it and haven't rewatched. I've never watched that Blu-ray. Oh, yeah, it's so good. It, it, yeah, totally worth your time. And and it, it's like an hour 45. It's just, and mm. because of the storytelling, it like, it just zooms by. It's, oh, it's so good. So good. Yeah, that's a great pick, man. Um, well, for, for mine, I'm going to go, I'm going to go back. I'm going back to the 70s. My my double feature stems from this curiosity about this backstory from Josie Wales that Philip Kaufman was working on the movie and he got fired I, reportedly for perfectionism, essentially. <laughs> I think the story was he had buried a film canister in some sand dunes. That was the perfect place. That was the mark to get the perfect shot. 
and the sand blew over and covered it and he was trying to find it they're losing daylight and eastwood like pulls the ad and they get a shot unbeknownst to kaufman and they get fired um but i was kind of like you know just the whole week being like what would the the philip kaufman version of outlaw josie wales look like i think it would be worse actually and uh why i think that is because of my double feature recommendation from 1972 philip kaufman did direct a western and it is the great northfield minnesota raid now i know you're thinking to yourself gee mike with a title that good how do i not know more about this movie It's a it's a wild movie. It it is my recommend. I actually found it just free on YouTube. Um, it's a it's a Jesse oh, nice. it's a Jesse James story. It's about Jesse James and Cole Younger. Um, Jesse James is played by Robert Duvall. The year he would play Tom Hagen in The Godfather. Pretty wild card performance from him. Um, uh, but the movie's not actually really about him. It's about Cole Younger, who's played by Cliff, Cliff Robertson, that folks will know as Uncle Ben in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. He made us cry in Spider-Man 2 with a great scene. Um, and it's it's just a story about them and and struggling with... Um, there's this subplot of like if, if the Missouri legislature is going to give them amnesty because they've just been robbing the railroad, which has been screwing people over. And so they both are of like two minds of like, do we wait it out and let the legal system take its course and bail us out? are we outlaws and do we just have to commit to that it's all over it's more scattershot than josie wales like we're if we are bagging on josie wales for being like slightly unfocused and like the great let me get i gotta have it up every time i say it the great northfield minnesota raid is all over the place but it is it is wild there is like a scene of jesse james like pretending to have a vision and speaking tongues when he's trying to pitch this like robbery they're gonna go on for the movie that is really just it makes me want to just watch el topo with kind of how outlandish so i'm not saying it's a good movie but uh you know it's to see what philip kaufman might have done had he had josie wales this gives you a good idea where his leanings were and it was it was a pretty wild time and, and made josie wales look so much better nice um, yeah, free on YouTube if you ever got an hour and a half, hour and a half. That was the other big draw. Like, <laughs> um, they get there because nothing happens visually. Everything is voiceover narrated with terrible ADR. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So yeah, sometimes I like to have fun with double features and, uh, go for the bad ones, but, uh, great. You're, you're definitely hell or high water. Like if folks only see one of these, definitely go watch that one. <laughs> If you have a spare 90 minutes, the great Northfield, Minnesota raid. Um, so that'll, that'll take us out everybody. So, uh, keep your eye on our social media pages at cinemas this Thursday. Cause we want to hear what you would put into a double feature with the, the outlaw Josie Wales. And that sets you up for Friday when you will have the ultimate say, and you will decide is Josie Wales truly an essential movie. Does it fit more in the middle tier? Like I believe, or is it a non-recommend uh, the way Adam thinks it is going to be totally up to you guys. So be on the lookout this Friday for that poll. First, Adam, let's thank Kieran for a great pick. I'm always glad to talk Westerns. And um, this was, I had such a fun discussion and thank you for, for being game for it. Um, just cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. Oh, of, of course. I, you know, I, it's funny that the professor in me is coming out and it's like, I just, I, I think part of what people need to do is, you know, your, your opinion is valid. You just need to have one and you need to voice it. And so what I, what, what I've found so much love about doing this is just like, yeah, I, did I like the outlaw Josie Wells? Not really, but 
what I liked about it and with pretty much most film is that if you pick somebody else who's watched it and who wants to have a conversation that that's that's where the growth and the the fun comes in. So, yeah, I I'm glad glad to have been here and to to talk about it. Yeah, we'll we'll get you back for something. I mean, we we've usually actually been pretty in line. I think this maybe is like the one we've disagreed on the most. So, maybe we should just keep pushing this further to one that's like a real oh. <laughs> there is already there is one that you know of. I know it. I, I I know I know I won't even I won't even speak its name. I'm just saying. Yeah, it's a ways out there, but it's it's coming. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, Adam, one more time. Where can folks find your shows? A thousand one by one and below freezing. You can find us on Facebook, uh, but most likely on Instagram and Twitter. Um, at a thousand and one by one. Uh, the numbers as numbers, but by is by and uh, below freezing uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram and below freezing 32 uh, on Twitter. Excellent. Thank you so much. And I don't, I don't know if you want to do this, but you're, you're a part of this game. Kieran recommended your movie. Next up, you recommended uh, grants, correct? I did. Do you, do you feel up to telling folks what uh, is happening next week and what movie you have uh, pushed over to Graham? Absolutely. Uh, so I recommended to Grant uh, a, 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 a pretty iconic film with a pretty iconic performance. Um, and I, am, uh, I recommended to him Michael Curtiz's Mildred Pierce. Which I am very excited about. We've never done, never done a Michael Curtiz movie before. I have not seen this in like 15 years. It's another one of those Blu-rays that <laughs> just never pulled off the shelf. And I am stoked. Joan Crawford is very fascinating to talk about. And I think this is going to be a great time. So you guys, uh, this is going to be a great game of passing this along. And eventually it's going to come full circle back to Kieran. Uh, he'll be rounding this out. So I hope everybody enjoys this run of episodes. And uh, yeah, Adam, thank you for being our, our inaugural one off. I think this got us off to a great start. And uh I wish you luck out there, man. Talking about the essential movies is tough. It, it certainly is. It's daunting, and I always feel like I'm going to say the wrong thing. <laughs> well, there's nobody I'd rather ride with. Um, thank you all. Thank you again, Adam, for coming on. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time for Mildred Pierce. And seriously, don't piss down our backs and tell us it's raining. <laughs>